Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from a special guest speaker. Good morning. As Pastor Neil said, I'm a missionary of our denomination. I'm also an ordained minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Lovely for me to see my friend Dr. Benjamin here as the interim at my home church. Um, I know Benjamin well from Presbytery, so that's a treat for me. Um, Yes, I am a missionary seminary professor. Um, I'm not going to talk about that this morning because that's what the Harvest Network Lunch is about. So if you guys, as soon as we're done here, we'll just go to the fellowship hall. We're going to have a great time to eat and to talk about what God and you and me are doing together in different parts of the world. So I hope you can join us. I am a seminary professor. I'm a Bible teacher. My PhD is in New Testament Greek grammar. I always say, somebody has to do that. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. So essentially, I'm a Bible teacher rather than a preacher. So we're just going to read the Bible together this morning, if that's okay. And that means that you need a Bible. Everybody's going to need to have a Bible in front of them open. The pew Bibles are there. If you see somebody who doesn't have a Bible, help them find one. If you've got extras, pass them along. Because trust me, this is not going to work unless you are following along with your finger in the text as we go. Um, While you're doing that, I do want to say, Neil's right, I came to KPC as an 11-year-old in 1971. Yeah, I was confirmed in this church when we were still over in the old building. I was married on those steps. I remember my firstborn being baptized right about where Jonathan was standing earlier, uh, spit up all over her daddy's dark suit, as I remember. And I stood right here to participate in the funerals of both my mother and my father, Jim and Nancy Larson, who some of you knew. Um, But also, every time I come back to KPC, there's new faces, and I know that some of you are new to me, so I hope we have a chance to meet. Over five decades, I have seen the ebbs and flows of this congregation. I have seen it at its best and at its messiest. And I know that you're in a bit of a transition period right now with Dr. Benjamin here as an interim. And I just want to affirm the goodness and grace of God in this congregation over 50 plus years. God has been shaping hearts and minds for his kingdom, including mine and including yours. And any transition that you're going through has nothing to do with God's presence or lack of presence here. God is here in the fullness of his grace. So a lovely treat for me to be here this morning. Okay, so we are going to be reading uh, the title of this message you may have seen is What Happened After Christmas? Um, Pastor Neil was reading a passage earlier talking about the liturgical year. We're uh, just about to get started with Jesus' baptism on Jesus' life and ministry. But in the social liturgical year, we are somewhere in that slump, that January slump between Christmas and the Super Bowl where it's kind of like, okay, now what happens? This is boring. I mean, you know, Super Bowl, no Tom Brady, no Ravens. I don't know how you feel about that. Something to look forward to. Um, So some of us like to keep our Christmas lights on a little longer to get through that January slump. So we are actually keeping the Christmas lights on a little longer this morning to talk about what happened after Jesus' birth. Once the, uh, you know, the packages are unwrapped and the food has been eaten and the The uh, relatives go home. (laughs) We think Christmas is over. But in the biblical narrative, 
That part, the birth of Jesus, is just the beginning of the story. So we're going to read a rather long passage this morning. We're going to do it in chunks, and I need you to read along with me. We're starting at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. In your pew Bibles, it's on page 733. Okay? Great. And it's also being projected up. Thank you. All right. I'm going to read the first part from 18 down to the end of the chapter, and then there will be a quiz. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man. Um, The text actually says a righteous man. What it means is he's a good, upstanding Jew. He is pressing into his relationship with God the best that he knows, according to his information and his tradition. Um, and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, of course, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, Um, May he save. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Emmanuel isn't a name so much as it's a proclamation of who this person is, God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Okay, here's the quiz. Talk to your neighbor. In this little section, who are the main characters? In this part of the story, who are the main characters? You get 10 seconds to talk to your neighbor. Okay. How many of you said that Mary was one of the main characters? That is the wrong answer. Do you notice that Mary is kind of off stage in this section? Like Mary is over in Luke singing songs, okay? But she is not here in Matthew's version. Now, in New Testament studies, we, we say that each gospel writer selects and arranges his material to make a certain point about Jesus' character, his life, his mission, his death and resurrection. So Matthew is not telling us this story journalistically. He's not trying to cover all the data. He is selecting and arranging his material to make a certain point about Jesus and Jesus' entry into the world. So our trick here is to listen to Matthew and what he wants to tell us about that. Now, you have probably had friends where you tell them you're so excited about it and that's something. And you tell them, or it's very, you're having an issue or a problem, and you tell them the whole story, and you really think they're listening, and then their response is, whoa, that is just like, and it's not just like. You suddenly realize that your friend was not listening to you at all. And often that's what we do with the biblical authors. We get so excited about something their words spark in us that we're not actually listening to what they want to say to us at that particular moment. So the, the challenge this morning is to um, be willing to hear how Matthew has selected and arranged certain material. 
to tell us some things. So in a sense, this passage all the way from here through the end of chapter two is a story in five chapters, five scenes. You can think about it as a storyboard with five panels. And that was the first panel. Who was the key character in that panel? Joseph. And who did Joseph have to help him? The, uh, the angel, yes, who appeared in a dream. And what was this all to fulfill? The promise, God's Old Testament promise. Okay, keep that in mind for a moment. And let's look at the next panel of the story. Turn the page, 734, verses uh, 1. I feel like I need to move this down a little bit so that I can move my head. Or I can move this over a little Verses 1 through 12. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. We're thinking it's probably somewhere in Baghdad, Persian astrologers, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come for you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. A ruler will come for you, from you. Keep that in mind. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Who are the key characters in this part of the story? Wise men are there. Who else is there? Herod, okay. And uh, Herod's advisors. What do you see in terms of the extra bits in this passage that looked like the last section? Angels, good. Angels warning in dreams and prophecy fulfilled. Good. So in the first panel, we had Joseph, angels warning in a dream, prophecy fulfilled. In this panel, we have Herod, we have also the wise men, warning in a dream and prophecy fulfilled. <clears throat> now look at the next section. After the wise men, this is from verses 13 down to 18. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay here till I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, who still doesn't really have much to do with the whole story. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Okay, let's just stop right there. Um, who is the main character there? Joseph. And what are the other two bits, the two pieces that you see there? 
angel in a dream and fulfilled prophecy. Good. Are you getting how Matthew has selected and arranged this material? Matthew's being really quite intentional here. Okay, the next little bit um, from verse 16 to 18. Sorry, because I had I told you too much before. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal act fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Who's the main character here? Herod. And what are the other bits that you see in the story? Fulfilled prophecy, what's missing? No angels, no dreams, okay? We'll come back to that in a second. I hope I'm whetting your appetite about this. And then the very last section of this panel, the very last panel of this story, uh, from 19 down to the end of chapter 2. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. <laughs> Again, you just don't get much of Mary in this story. Um, and every time, every time Mary and the baby are mentioned, the baby comes first, the child and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Okay, who's the main character here? It's Joseph again. And where are the other two bits in the story? Warned by the angel in a dream and fulfilled prophecy. So let's think about how Matthew is selecting and arranging this story. We've got five panels. We've got Joseph. We have Herod. We have Joseph. We have Herod. And we have Joseph again. Do you see it? And if we didn't see it just by the characters, Matthew is cluing us in by the appearance of the angels in dreams and by the fulfillment of prophecy. There are five steps. So why? What's Matthew doing that he's selecting and arranging his material in these five steps? Well, Joseph essentially has one job. What's Joseph's job? Save the baby. <laughs> Joseph has one job, save the baby. <laughs> What's Herod doing? He's trying to kill the baby. So Herod has one goal, kill the baby. So we have save the baby, we have kill the baby, we have save the baby, we have kill the baby, we have save the baby. This is what was happening after Christmas. You know, it can be a little messy in that period after childbirth. My older daughter just had her second baby the week before Christmas. And, you know, it's like, oh, the baby's coming. We're going to have the shower. We're doing all these things. He's darling. His name's Jack. If you come to Harvest Network, I'll show you a picture. But he's so cute. But, you know, what they're in right now, they're in the messy part. <laughs> they're in the, this kid wakes up at night and he poops a lot and they're going through diapers and this whole thing. So, you know, there were messy parts after Jesus' birth. We think of the highlight as Christmas, but really that's just the beginning of the story of how Jesus is entering our human story. 
So I want to just pull out um, three things that I think Matthew wants us to notice in the way that he has selected and arranged this material. And the first is Emmanuel, God with us, that God is in the middle of this. Now, in every one of these panels, we see God's intervention. It's basically Matthew quoting God saying, I've got this. I've got this. This looks like a mess. This does not look how you expected your Messiah to come. There's a lot of danger here, but I've got this. Emmanuel, God with us. Um, we could look at each of those five fulfillment statements, but I really want to look at the one um, just as an example about um, where the babies are killed in Bethlehem. Because you know what? When we do those Christmas pageants, we do not put in the little babies getting slaughtered, okay? It's like we do not let the two-year-old class be those people in the story. We sanitize those. I just, my, my other grandson is uh, 23 months, and I went to his Christmas pageant. It was hysterical. But we sanitize those little stories. He was, he was a donkey, so he had little donkey ears. There is nothing in our story about those babies being destroyed. But there is in our world. There is in our world. This is a type of genocide. If Herod was alive now, we'd be bringing him to the ICC for war crimes and crimes against humanity. He slaughtered every baby that he thought could have been a rival to him. This is supposed to be good news. Gospel, good news, what's that all about? Um, scholars have actually tried to estimate, based on the population of Bethlehem at that time and um, the timing, how many little babies that would have meant. And their guess is maybe 20. 20 babies would have been two years old or less in that village and its surrounding area, just statistically. That's a guess. That is 20 families who would be sitting in the congregation this morning in tears. Okay? That is not what we usually think of as part of the good news. And look at the fulfillment of the prophet. What happens here? A cry was heard in Ramah, I'm in chapter 2, verse 18. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Is this God saying, I've got this? Doesn't sound like it, unless you know the timeline. Now, how many of you have seen the new uh, Little Women film yet? It's great. Even guys might like it. Um, but the thing is, the way they've done this version is they pop around in time. And, and some, I, I remember, I love the film, but I was watching it thinking, if I did not know the storyline, I would be really confused right now. So if you do not happen to know the biblical storyline, you might be really confused by what this passage, this prophecy is doing in the middle of the slaughter of these children upon the arrival of Emmanuel. So Rachel, of course, goes back 1,500 years before this time. She was the wife of Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel. He becomes the father of the 12 tribes that become Israel. Um, so she is considered figuratively the mother of Israel. She's kind of the symbol for the mother of Israel. And uh, she died in childbirth. And the Old Testament tells us that she was buried either in Bethlehem or on the road to Bethlehem. So this idea of weeping, of Israel, and of Bethlehem have triggered for Matthew and his audience that memory of Rachel. But he's not actually quoting that old story. He's quoting what Jeremiah did with that story 
600 years before Matthew and 900 years after Rachel lived. Does that make sense? So there's a timeline here. So really, we're going to go back 600 years to Jeremiah. I want you to look at Jeremiah chapter 31, where this comes from. It's on page 599 in the Pew Bibles, if you're following. One of the things about Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament is it's kind of like a flag planted. Usually, it's not just the verse that's quoted that matters. It's the whole context. So um, if you sing a line of a familiar song, okay, so I was praying and thinking about the sermon, and suddenly I heard Olivia um, go, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then I know what comes next, and I know what happens and what's supposed to happen around that, okay? So that's what happens when any of this Old Testament context is quoted in the New Testament. The author and the audience, they're kind of like, ooh, I know the rest of that song. Now, we may not know the rest of that song, so let's look. Look back, it's like I said, on 599 in your pew Bible. At the very top, um, it's verse 15, top left column if you're looking. This is what the Lord has said. A cry is heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted for their children are gone. This is at the moment of Israel's exile when they have been most unfaithful to their God. Their nation is being destroyed. Um, People are dying and they're being carried off to captivity in in, um, Babylon. This is the low point of Israel's history. But look what the rest of the song is. Verse 16, but now this is what the Lord says, do not weep any longer, for I will reward you. Your children will come back to you. There is hope for your future. Your children will come again. I have heard Israel saying, you disciplined me severely. You see, I'm skimming. Down to 19, I turned away from God, but then I was sorry. I kicked myself for my stupidity. I was thoroughly ashamed of all I did in my younger days. It's referencing Israel's repentance for their rebellion against God. And what happens to people who are rebels against God? Now skim down to verse 30. 31. Jeremiah 31. Thank you. Did you find it? Skip down to um, 30. All people will die for their own sins. Those who eat the sour grapes will be the ones whose mouths will pucker. But... The day is coming, said the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. This is the song that's being sung in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. This, even in your worst moments, Emmanuel, God with us, I've got this, says God. I have a plan. I have a plan to take the ugliness and brokenness of sin, both individual and societal, and transform it 
by the arrival of this baby. I've got this. I think that's one of the things that Matthew wants us to see. Another thing is this character of Joseph. Joseph is possibly the most unlikely hero we could imagine for this. Joseph is a carpenter. You know, he's not a rabbi or a priest or somebody well-educated. Um, it says he's a good guy, just guy. Like I say, he's pressing into his relationship with God as well as he can, but as well as he knows. But basically, he has no particular reason to be the hero in this story. He was just plucked out of nowhere to be the hero. And remember, Jesus, uh, Joseph has one job, save the baby. One job, save the baby. And does Joseph have to do it on his own? No. There's not a single time in here where Joseph goes, whoa, how am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to make this work? Every single time God comes to him and says, this is what you need to do. And Joseph's, um, the goodness of Joseph is simply that he does it. The goodness of Joseph is simply that he does it. I know a lot of us will wonder, you know, I'm pretty much of a nobody. Would God ever use me to do anything significant in his kingdom? You know, we often talk up front about we all have a calling and we have this and we have that and God's using us and great things in your life. But in reality, a lot of us sit back there going, not me. I have nothing to offer here. I'm not anything special. I have no particular skills. Well, meet Joseph. What does Joseph say through these two chapters? Look down and see what Joseph actually says. Nothing. <laughs> Typical man. Strong, silent type. I was on a mission team in November, and I had a very talkative woman roommate. And at one point, I said to her, uh, Gina, I, I need to get some work done. I really need us to do either parallel play or companionable silence right now. And she's like, OK, I can do that for about 20 minutes. So we were at the table, and then she left. And then two of the guys on our team came and sat at the table. And they're like, are you going to be here for a while? Can we sit with you? And I said, yes, but you're going to have to do either parallel play or companionable silence. And they looked at each other, and they're like, what else is there? <laughs> so yeah, Joseph is this strong, silent type. He has no lines. He has no brilliant ideas. But he's there. And he's faithful to what God calls him to do. And he saves the baby. And then what do we learn about Joseph later in the Gospel of Matthew? Nothing. He disappears after this. He's never, ever mentioned again in the Gospel of Matthew. He's there for what God needs him to do. He responds. He listens to the direction. And he saves the baby. Joseph is the kind of ordinary hero that God loves to use. If you're ever wondering if God can use you, meet Joseph. Now, on the other hand, I would say Joseph is what I get interested in, but I actually think that Matthew's primary interest is in Herod. Okay? Matthew's primary interest is in Herod. 
Um, look in the first few chapters, sorry, first few verses of chapter 2. From chapter 2, 1, verse down to about 4. How is Herod described? What title is he given? King. And it says, a king is repeated here numerous times. Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the reign of King Herod. Um, King Herod was deeply disturbed. Um, Herod called for a private meeting. It talks about the wise one referring to the, the king. Herod was a kind of a scary guy. One of my favorite throwaway verses in here is verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now, why is everybody in Jerusalem concerned? Because Herod is concerned. Um, I'm going to read you just a little bit of background from one of the commentaries. I put this on my phone so I would have it. Talking about, this is Herod the Great. This is actually not the Herod later when Jesus is killed or when Paul's around. This Herod dies about right, right about the time Jesus dies. Uh, is born. Herod the Great established himself in the favor of the Romans and with their help fought his way into Jerusalem and into power. His ruthless campaign ended in 37 BC with a three-month siege of Jerusalem. So about 35 years earlier, Herod had fought his way in a bloody battle into the kingship in Jerusalem. From then on until his death in 4 BC, which is why we think Jesus was actually born in 6 BC, but that's beside the point, he was supreme in Jerusalem, king of all Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Two characteristics are notable about Herod's rule. First, his insecurity, political to start with, and psychological. Having fought his way into power, he faced continuing opposition and uncertainty for the early years of his reign. He successfully played off different Roman leaders against each other and ruthlessly put down internal opposition to his rule. Members of his own family, including his wife, Mariamne, fell foul of his suspicions and were killed. In due course, he became firmly established in power, but he continued to be nervous. And in the later years of his life, he was obsessed about possible threats to his position. Three of his own sons were executed, including his favorite Antipater, just days before Herod's own death. Herod's Palestine was a police state living in fear. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Herod was deeply disturbed, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is Herod, with all of his power and all of his ruthlessness, could not defeat this baby because of Joseph. Joseph had one job, save the baby. Herod had one goal, kill the baby. It's interesting how Matthew shows us Herod. Now, you noticed that he's referred to as king multiple times. Once you get down to, chapter, to verse 11 in chapter 2, the wise men, they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. At that point, after that point, Herod is never referred to as king again. He becomes referred to as Herod, but not King Herod. What does Matthew want us to know? There's a new king. 
there's a new king. And even in his infant helplessness, like my tiny little new grandson, who I realize is fragile and completely dependent on us, even in his most vulnerable vulnerability, he's more powerful than Herod. Herod cannot defeat this king. Now, some of us identify with Joseph in the sense of we wonder, could God ever use a person like me? Some of us might actually identify with Herod. There are those of us, and as a type A person, maybe this would be me and some of you, who build our own kingdoms. And if not as ruthlessly as Herod, certainly as relentlessly and possibly as cunningly, have spent a lot of energy sustaining our own little kingdoms. And Matthew wants us to know there's a new king. There's a new king. Will you recognize him? Will you acknowledge him? Who's going to be king? Him or you? This is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Let's, let's pray together over this word of God. Father, as we hear your word, we are so grateful for how you use the gifts of Matthew and the simplicity of Joseph and even worked in and around the relentlessness of Herod in order to bring your king to our lives. Lord, may we see him. May we recognize him. May we acknowledge him. May we serve him. Let Jesus be king over all, just as you desire, just as your plan is. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.